I'm Eileen Dunn and this is The God Slot. A New Jersey appeals court has ruled that Myron Cowher, a former truck driver who alleges he endured anti-Semitic slurs for more than a year, can sue his former supervisors even though he's not Jewish. And the Libyan Transitional Council on Tuesday passed legislation governing the formation of political organisations, which rules out religious, regional and tribal platforms and bans foreign funding. Yesterday came confirmation that Passionist priest Father Brian Darcy had been censured by the Vatican. In a statement, he said he was disappointed there wasn't greater respect for freedom of speech in the Church. The story featured in the Catholic weekly The Tablet. Its author spoke to Gerry McArdle. Sarah MacDonald, you're the Irish correspondent for The Tablet and you actually broke this story. What's going on? Well, it's another Irish priest who has fallen foul of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. Um, It's quite surprising uh, that so many Irish priests, and I mean, we are aware of five priests for sure. Father Brian is the fifth priest. There is suggestion that a sixth priest is also uh, under censure, and there there may indeed be more. Um, What happened with Father Brian Darcy is 14 months ago, his superior general of the Passionist Order was summoned in by Cardinal William Levada of the Congregation for the Doctrine of Faith, who presented certain concerns to him over Father Darcy's articles in the Sunday World. Now, um, what we have gathered is that it uh, pertained to four articles, and that's four articles out of a weekly output over almost 38 years. So it really is a rather small number. The other rather interesting um, fact to emerge is that um, the prefect for the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith, uh, Cardinal Levada, took issue with some of the headlines on those articles. Now, as anybody who is involved in the media knows, a journalist isn't always the author of the headlines uh, in their articles. So it seems a little bit unfair that um, Father Darcy should be taken to task over this. Absolutely, and I mean, the paper he writes for is a tabloid paper, and they do headlines in a certain way. It's, it's, It's a very populist kind of thing they do. Absolutely. I mean, it has a circulation of 250,000. And the thing is, Father Darcy is giving a a platform for faith issues within one of Ireland's best-selling newspapers. And action like this could lead to Father Darcy actually perhaps losing that faith slot, which would mean that ultimately the general populace would lose out. It it seems like the church is shooting itself in the foot. Well, that's what I was going to say to you. This is a known goal, because, I mean, whatever about the other four priests, and some of them are well-known in certain circles, nobody is as well-known and as popular as as Brian Darcy. Indeed, here in this organisation, people of my vintage regard him as a personal friend, apart from being a a fine priest. Is this in line with Benedict XVI as Cardinal Ratzinger when he said that he wanted a leaner, smaller church as long as it was orthodox? Yes, I think we're seeing um, the church taking a stance on some of its neuralgic uh, issues. And it would seem to me, it was mentioned to me in a conversation last night, that uh, to actually adopt such a a strong stance uh, by the CDF in in relation to priests like Father Brian Darcy 
it suggests that the church is reaching out more to say the uh, Lefebvre's section they're trying to they seem to be bending over backwards to bring them back within the fold and at the same time they're taking a rather uh, strong stance in relation to more liberal uh, uh, clergy the thing I find interesting is Father Darcy is a priest journalist. Um, he was the first Irish priest to uh, become a member of the National Union of Journalists. And he is not a bishop. He is not a lecturer in theology. He is not involved in the seminary f- formation. He is a priest who gave the church profile within the media and reached out to people who otherwise might have felt very alienated by the church. And it seems to me that um, the church is taking him to task on that. And it's not just Father Brian Darcy. Another priest who spoke to me over the last couple of weeks is Father Owen O'Sullivan, an Irish Capuchin who was censured by the Congregation for the Doctrine of Faith two years ago, principally because he wrote an article for the Furrow magazine in March 2010, which was titled On Including Gays. He tried to argue that the church needs to be more inclusive and more understanding in its position. And he probably pushed the boundaries a little bit on that. And over the last couple of weeks, he he suggested to me that priests should join a trade union in order to safeguard their rights. And he also said that he had received no indication from the Vatican of any time limit to the ban that they've imposed on him. His expectation is that the ban will be there till his death. Listen, Sarah MacDonald, thank you very, very much for taking the time to talk to us. And it's back to you now, Eileen. In the United States, the thorny issue of abortion is very much to the fore in the presidential election campaign, with Catholic bishops and evangelical Protestants opposing it. As a result of the X case in 1992, abortion is still illegal in the Irish Republic, except where a woman's life is in danger, as distinct from her health. A bill to legislate for the X case was rejected recently by the government, with Health Minister James Riley noting that a report from an expert group was awaited. An emotive topic to some, abortion is purely a legal and medical issue. To others, it's a religious and moral issue, even a human rights issue. And that's what we're going to discuss now. We're joined in studio by Niamh Ivrian, a member of the Non-Denominational Life Institute, and by Dr Joan Lawler, a senior lecturer in midwifery who has completed a research project for PhD studies on the experiences of women who carried to full term a baby with foetal abnormality. Niamh, abortion is often seen as a Catholic issue, but is it an issue for all the major religions? Well, I actually think it's an issue for the major religions and for people of no faith at all. And at its very essence, it's about protecting the human rights of other people. And I think people of all faiths and none come together within the pro-life movement to protect unborn human life. And what about the human rights of the mother? We've had several cases in this country where the European Court of Human Rights has ruled against us. Well, I think... The European Court of Human Rights has ruled against Ireland in that it has said it needs to clarify its laws. But for me, this is a matter for the Irish people to decide. And I think we shouldn't rush to follow other jurisdictions in regard to protecting human life. We should make those decisions for ourselves. We've seen that we are the safest country in the world to have a baby after 20, without, without recourse to abortion. But even more importantly than that, I think we've seen that abortion rates are dropping 
because we're offering better support services for, for mothers, because society is more open for women and because I think we have a better understanding of the humanity of the unborn child. Well, abortion rates may be dropping, but there are still hard cases. And what struck many people in the last few weeks in this current debate was the women who spoke out, the women like Amanda Mellet and Arlette Lyons. Dr Joan Lawler, you have done research on, on these uh, pregnancies where there are fetal abnormalities. Yeah, I've I've worked both clinically and in research since 1995 with women who are facing an abnormal result as a result of screening. And bear in mind that these women um, are very positive about pregnancy. Um, Their baby is very much loved and in their mind a a miracle like it is for anybody else. But an ultrasound, which is uh, an examination in pregnancy, often around 18 to 20 weeks, may actually reveal to these women that their baby has a condition whereby the baby will not survive outside of the womb. Some babies will die in the womb, others will die maybe in labour or close to the birth, and some will certainly die probably even within minutes, hours or days of the actual birth. Um, And unfortunately, the problem is, is that while science has advanced in terms of technology, in what we can see and what we can screen for, science has not advanced in terms of fetal therapy, in terms of being able to alter the outcome for these babies. Um, And certainly my work with these women has been around both women who have chosen to continue the pregnancy and also in terms of women who have actually chosen to travel to the UK in order to terminate the pregnancy. I think the point needs to be made that when some women travel to the UK, and again this hasn't even come out in the last week or two, often they're going to centres of excellence in terms of fetal medicine to find out is there anything that can be done in the UK. They very much want their baby. They believe in the miracle of life. They see themselves as being pro-life in, in that regard. But I think what what is very clear is, is that we don't have, um, I suppose, appropriate guidelines here for, number one, how to handle and support these parents. I know there was a comment recently in the media, I think it may have been Ronan Mullen, who spoke about things like palliative care, you know, for the newborn, should parents actually continue. I think it's worthy of note that the first palliative care consultant for children was actually only appointed in 2011, which is one person who's a national resource and is for children, not specifically necessarily for neonates. And these babies will be born in maternity hospitals. They won't be in the children's sector until a minimum of six weeks. So professionals for women who do choose to continue the pregnancy and give birth knowing that their babies are going to die are doing their absolute best at a local level. And I think when we think of life and we, we think of supporting the mother and baby, and Eve is right, we absolutely should support the mother and baby and the extended family and their partner. I mean, we don't disagree on that at all. But we need to consider something more than mortality. So, for example, we talk about Ireland being the safest place to give birth, but that's in relation to mortality or death. It's not in relation to morbidity, psychological distress, mental and physical distress as a result of the decision that's being made. And I think the debate needs to move away from the extremes of being either one end or the other, but really to look at the people who are caught in the middle. Isn't that the whole point, Neve? that it's not a black or white issue? Well, absolutely, it's not a black or white issue. And I would agree with a large amount of what Joan has said there. And I think in relation to these particular cases that have been to the forefront for the past couple of weeks, these are enormously distressful upsetting circumstances for any parent to face and for those four women also. And I know that for the last two weeks in particular, 
I've had a huge amount of calls from women who have been in this situation and who have carried their babies to term. And I really think their voices, and I'm glad to hear you speaking about them today, Joan, I think their voices are being ignored. To, in, for me, as a mother who's listening, what I'm hearing constantly is that there is no hope, is that babies won't live, is that parents will not get to spend time with their babies. And that's very often not the case. I think parents, too, are being frightened by comments made, now not, not by the, the four women involved, but by certainly by commentators who are saying that babies will suffer greatly and that their lives won't be worth living. And that has not been the experience of the women I've, I have spoken to. And I think they feel that they might have only had, in one woman one, one I spoke to, she only had 90 minutes with her baby, her family, and her shared those precious 90 minutes. They took photographs and they will have those memories forever. And she said to me, and it was, it was really very sad and very poignant, she said that she, her baby's life was worth something. And the current discussion makes her feel as if people feel her baby's life was worthless. Joan, can you see circumstances where abortion is the answer? I can in the respect that, and I mean, I accept what Neve is saying and I do accept that the, the women who've chosen to continue the pregnancy, that their voice has been absent in a way in the last couple of weeks. But in some ways, I think that the reason that the women who have terminated their pregnancy have actually come forward is because for so many years they've been silenced. There is a huge fear of coming forward. There's a fear around the law and whether you'll be criminalised in retrospect because you actually left the country. There's a fear in professionals to come forward around what is the context of the discussion. And again, it comes back to what Neve said, parents need support. But what we can't do is support them to make a decision that another parent might choose, we have to support them to make the decision that they choose, the decision that is actually best for them. I think until you know what it's like to make that decision, you can only understand and try and help, but you will never know what it's like to make that decision unless you're the one actually making it. These are not situations that parents actually went into uh, knowing that something like this would happen. And something that you said earlier, all of these women were pro-life. All of these people believe mm. in the miracle. And isn't that Absolutely. something that great is that the pro-life side, if you like, has hijacked that term, if nothing well, else? Well, no, I, I don't think that's fair, to be honest, because I think being pro-life is about protecting all of human life. And I think an important basic ethical principle here is that I believe, and I think medical ethics should support this, that every human life, however short it is, however severe the disability is, is worthy of protection. A right to life is a basic human right. Joan, you wanted to respond to that? I think really what the debate needs to be about is how do we support everyone in this situation and not just a particular group who choose a particular thing. Even things like, for example, some of the women who went to the UK said to me when they came back they were thinking about maybe going to meetings. Often there are public meetings around, say, uh, support for women, say, who've lost babies in infancy or who are stillborn. And because they have chosen a different option and their baby wasn't born here and they didn't go to full term, they often feel like they're not welcome or they can't go to these supports that are available either formally or informally. They just feel terribly excluded. And I think the point is, is that we need to somehow stop the exclusion, regardless mm. of who it is. Stigma is a word that came up several times. Should a woman be made feel guilty? No, or I, mean, I think anyone who has faced this terrible situation shouldn't be made to, to feel guilty. And 
it's not about trying to make people feel guilty. It's about trying to support each other. And I can understand that if you're in the situation and you feel that you have no option, you mightn't want to go to speak to somebody who has made a different decision. Mm. But I do think it would be tremendously helpful to you because, and you know, again, the, the conversations I've had in the last couple of weeks have been incredibly distressing for the people I've been speaking to and in some instances this happened 10 years ago in one instance it happened 20 years ago and it's still incredibly distressing and they say that every time they talk about it it gets a little bit easier I think abortion is a medieval practice I think it's a medieval answer to a crisis pregnancy and I think let's progress to where we have better answers rather than terminating the child instead of the crisis we would always say in every crisis pregnancy you should work to terminate the crisis and not the child that may well be the, the uh, ultimate aspiration, but for some, there is no other choice. And have we the right to block that? Well, see, I think that there always is a choice. And I, I've, women I've spoken to who've gone to England for abortions and women, of course, who haven't and who've had their babies, they've all felt at some stage in the pregnancy, I can't do this, whether it's because they're in an abusive relationship. And there's a lot of women, and this is not spoken about at all, who are coerced. Not, they mightn't be physically dragged onto the aeroplane to have the abortion, but they are being coerced. Now, the government ha- is awaiting this report from an expert group and mm. has promised to move the situation forward in some shape or form. Yeah. What would you be hoping for? Niamh, I'll ask you in a moment. Mm. I think the problem with the expert group is the terms of reference, in that it's to deal with the consequences of X. But X does not actually include or deal with these women. What it will do in relation to X, I hope, is at least clarify the situation whereby it is lawful to have a termination of pregnancy in this country. As it stands at the moment, it is lawful if the, the life of the mother is grievously threatened, including through suicide. But what we don't actually have at the moment is, and certainly this came out of the European Court of Human Rights, what we don't have is any kind of legislation or framework to find out in what situation in the Republic of Ireland would you qualify to have a lawful abortion. And I suppose the concern is is maybe that the courts would be used as some kind of a licensing authority if it was to go on a case-by-case basis. So I guess one of the things maybe that might come out of the expert group is some kind of effective mechanism whereby one would find out whether one qualifies. Having said that, that doesn't actually necessarily mean that if one qualifies, that one would actually have access to the service in Ireland because then you're in the position of, are there any clinicians who will perform it? How will the hospitals respond? How will the medical council guidelines and board alternate guidelines? So all of that even is background to whatever the expert group might come out with. So it may be a case of it's lawful under the terms of X but it still may not be actually physically possible. Niamh, what would you be hoping for? In relation to the expert group, I think the composition of the expert group is quite disappointing, to be honest. At least two members of the expert group have been advocating abortion for a long time in this country. I'm disappointed to see that it isn't more neutral. In terms of what it will produce, I suppose it will produce a series of recommendations for the government to look at. One of the areas it will look at is the European Court of Human Rights ruling and how that impacts on our laws. But the European Court of Human Rights asked us to clarify our laws in relation to what they describe as lawful terminations of pregnancy. And really what we're looking at then is whether abortion is ever necessary in Ireland, whether it's ever necessary to preserve the life as 
distinct to the health of a mother. And I think all of the evidence and all of the expert evidence from obstetricians and gynaecologists have shown us that it isn't because the government has held public hearings on this issue and actually it has already heard from the experts from the Royal Institute, from the Institute of Obstetricians and Gynaecologists who very clearly and unequivocally stated at those hearings that abortion was never medically necessary. So I think what the government should now do is to give a referendum to roll back the X case and then continue to work to provide better supports for mothers and babies. Another referendum, Joan, what do you think? In a way, the positive thing about a referendum is it always gives the people their say. And uh, hopefully those who are affected by the issue will actually feel in a position to exercise that vote. I think like everything, when a referendum is put to the people, it's put with very limited terms. So I think unless there is some kind of... um, platform whereby the subtleties, the complexity and the variation whereby a termination of pregnancy might be lawful in this country is offered as opposed to it is or it isn't. It's the mother's life or it isn't. I think that won't give us, that won't give the people their say either. And I think that the terms have to be very clear that the variation and complexity are presented to the people. Well, there we have to leave it and we'll await the outcome of the expert group's deliberations, which is due in the next couple of months. Dr. Joan Lawler, Nia Vivrian, thank you both very much for joining us this evening. Thank you. Little or nothing is known about Mary E. Walsh except the following, that she was educated by the Sisters of Notre Dame somewhere in the United States and that she composed, among other pieces, a popular waltz called the Black Hawk Waltz, which survives in print to this day. For our purposes, however, she was responsible for a tradition that is honoured here on RTE Radio around this time every year. May, for Christians and particularly Catholics, is devoted to the Virgin Mary. And as Tuesday next is the first of the month, we pay homage to that RTE Radio tradition by finishing with Mary E. Walsh's best-known composition, first published in 1871 and sung here by Canon Sidney McCune. Need I say more? Bring flowers of the rarest, bring blossoms the fairest, from garden and woodland and hillside and dale. Our full hearts are swelling, our glad voices telling the praise of the loveliest flower Blossoms today, Queen of the Angels and Queen of the Bay. O Mary, we crown thee with blossoms today, Queen of the Angels and Queen of the Children on earth be as true. 
As long as the bowers are radiant with flowers, as long as the azure shall keep its bright hue, O Mary, we crown thee with blossoms today. Canon Sidney McEwan singing the crowning hymn, best known as Bring Flowers of the Rarest. And that's our programme for this week. Our phone number is 01208-2039. Our email address is godslot at rte.ie and our postal address, the Godslot, RTE Radio 1, Dublin 4. We'll be back at the same time next Friday. Gudi shin, slán, Because I gotta have